The Radcliffe Science Library in Oxford, England, is the main research or science library of the university. It is part of the famous Bodleian Library, and Lois and I last fall had an opportunity to, to tour a part of it. One of the things that you notice when you enter the foyer of the library is that it contains a plaque in honor of John Radcliffe, the man who contributed a vast sum of money to the building of that library. They give an extensive account of his labors and work in securing the site and the building that now houses the Research Science Library. We see that kind of thing in many places, even here in Toronto, where there are plaques remembering those who have served or who have contributed in some significant ways. These are done that future generation should remember the work of others who have preceded us. In Matthew chapter 26, we have indeed a spiritual plaque, a record that is given to the memory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26 covers the events immediately preceding the crucifixion. It begins with a plot to kill Jesus in verses 1 to 5. His anointing in Bethany in preparation for his death and burial, verses 6 to 13. It also includes the role of Judas in betraying the Lord for the 30 pieces of silver. And of course, we have then the preparation and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we began to consider at the last Lord's table. Matthew tells us that on the first day of unleavened bread, perhaps the day refers to the day prior to the Passover itself. There's some dispute as to the timing and what calendar is being used. At least John seems to be using a different calendar from that of Matthew. Nevertheless, the details are clear. Jesus instructs the disciples to prepare the Passover. And of course, Passover was that meal that was celebrated in Israel to remind the nation of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, to remember the night when Israel ate in haste, and when the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt and slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. But when he came to Goshen, where the children of Israel lived, because they had sacrificed lambs and daubed the doorpost and the lintel of their homes, the angel of death passed over them because they were protected through that sacrificial lamb. 
This was the feast of Passover. God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And the Lord Jesus, in this Passover meal, instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is closely associated with the Passover. Indeed, whatever the Passover signified, deliverance through sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ has now come to fulfill. He is indeed the true sacrificial lamb, the lamb that John could point to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He would be the new lamb. It is his body that would be broken and his blood that would be shed that would become the Passover for his people. We considered the last time in verses 16 and following that indeed our Lord Jesus Christ as he instituted the Lord's Supper, that central to the Lord's Supper is the notion of the new covenant. That Jesus shed his blood, it was a price, by which he would inaugurate a new covenantal arrangement, a new agreement between him and his people. And that there's a new agreement central to that is, of course, the idea of the forgiveness of sins. We read in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Central to the Lord's Supper was the idea of a new covenant which brought forgiveness of sins. Our task then is not to rehearse the role and the significance of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated, but rather we want to suggest that the Lord's Supper contains other ideas that are central apart from that of New Covenant. That essentially, the Lord's Supper entails the ideas of the commemoration of the death of Christ. It entails the idea of communion in the blood and the body of Christ. And finally, it involves the consummation in the Messianic banquet. I want to flesh out then these ideas. First, then, that the Lord's Supper functions as a commemoration and proclamation of the death of Christ. Matthew says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. He tells us that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the meal, the Passover meal. And he sets out the basic elements for commemorating his death. He takes bread. He blessed it and broke it. Obviously, our Lord would have blessed the meal before they began. But because he is about to institute this Lord's Supper, this symbolic meal, he prays, he blesses. 
He blesses the bread and he blesses the cup from which they drink. These are symbolic elements. The bread, he explains the, the event and the symbols themselves that this, this common unleavened bread that was eaten, this diluted wine that was often the substance that they imbibed in Palestine, signified the body of Christ, shed on, given on behalf of his people, and the wine symbolizes the shedding of his blood in violent death that would bring to past the new covenant. Jesus says to them, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. But it is important as Jesus takes these symbols of bread and wine and associate these to his physical suffering and his death on the cross, which brings about the new covenant, that Jesus intends that this feast should be one of commemoration, one of remembrance. Now Matthew does not tell us that this Jesus Christ ordained that they should do this in remembrance of him. But if you look at the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22 verse 19, Luke says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Clearly, the Lord intended that after he had left and ascended into heaven, that the church of Jesus Christ should engage in this feast, the Lord's Supper, and to do so in memory, in commemoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord's Supper functions as a commemoration and proclamation of the death of Christ. For not only does Luke tell us this, but the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, indicates that the Lord's Supper speaks of commemorating the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians deals with a number of theological and moral issues that confronted the church in the first century, the church of Corinth. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul addresses the problem of factionalism in the church. It was a divisive church. One says, I am for Paul. One says, I am for Cephas. Even one, one group of people were saying, I am for Jesus. They were a divisive church, and Paul deals with that in the first four chapters. In chapters 5 to 7, Paul deals with this whole matter of sexual immorality amongst them. In, verses, in chapters 8 to 10, he deals with the question of idolatry. And then in chapter 11, at least in the first 16 verses, he takes up this matter of head covering, where it appears that there were wives who were abandoning head covering, the sign of their marriage commitment, and we're doing so in the name of freedom in Christ. And so Paul addresses that in the first 16 verses of chapter 11. But in verses 17, in, in verses 17 to 34, he takes up 
what he perceives as the abuse of the Lord's Supper. And it is as he writes in the context of the abuse, in other words, as he writes to correct the abuse of the Lord's table, that we see elements and we see truths that, that he received from the Lord regarding the Lord's Supper. What we find in this passage is that there were divisions in the church regarding the Lord's Supper and at the Lord's Supper. It is clear that the Lord's Supper was observed in a communal meal. Perhaps somewhat like what we do when we gather in the basement for a church meal. It was during a meal of that nature that they observed the Lord's table. But there were certain abuses in which the people were engaged. It appears that some of them were eating their own private meals, perhaps separating themselves in rank and status from others. So others, some were eating and were unconcerned about those who had nothing to eat. And while they were doing that, there were others who were getting drunk. And so Paul writes to refute their selfish and immoral behavior by pointing them to Jesus Christ. And he relays in verses 23, 23 to 24 the instruction that he received from the Lord. He tells them that, that the Lord took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. Just as Israel then was to remember the Passover annually, that they were delivered by God from their captivity, so the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper that we should remember his death, that we should have this intellectual recollection of what he has done for us. That it is the task and the obligation and the privilege of believers to remember that Christ came into the world to secure our release from the penalty of the law and from the condemnation of God. That he came into the world and that he gave his life as a ransom and as a substitute for us. That he took our place. That he did not die essentially because of the scheming of men. Or because of the betrayal of those who were close to him like Judas. But that he died according to the foreordained purpose of God and the pleasure of God. That his death was an act of supreme love on his part. Because he handed himself over willingly to the cross. And he was exposed to the power, the powers of hell and of darkness. He was publicly shamed, pierced, crucified, hung up before the entire world to be seen as our sin bearer. We must remember him who suffered publicly the penalty as the one cursed by God. He did it because of us and for us. Christ was delivered over to death 
Paul says, for our sins and was raised for our justification. Take, eat, this is my body given for you. It is a calling. The Lord's Supper calls us to remember the cross. Christ died for us. And this commemoration of Christ's death itself is a proclamation for Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, our Lord says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he goes on in the next verse, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the commemoration of Christ's death is itself a proclamation. For as we look at what he did, as we point to the bread which symbolizes his body and the cup which symbolizes his blood for us, we are making a proclamation. And we are declaring that in Christ's death, salvation has come. That this is God's remedy for human sin. We are saying to the world that there is now available in Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, a new relationship with God, and central to that relationship is the forgiveness of sins. The old covenant promised, and in fact the, 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 the old covenant says, do this and live. But we were incapable of fulfilling the law. So God gave to Jeremiah a new covenant. A new covenant in which he says there will be the forgiveness of sins. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins and I will remember them no more. The Lord's Supper is a call to remember. And in remembering to proclaim that salvation has come. That Jesus Christ has provided in one sacrifice for sin. Complete redemption, deliverance and forgiveness of sins. But the Lord's Supper contains another idea, not only that of commemoration of the death of Christ. The Lord's Supper represents our communion in the redemptive work of Christ. If you go back to the passage in Matthew 26, the evangelist says, as they were eating, Matthew 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and says, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. You see, the Lord's Supper not only speaks of memory, or recollection, or commemoration, it speaks of communion. It speaks of communion. And this, I think, is implied in the language that Luke uses. It is implied in the plural form of the verbs that we find here. He took the cup and he says, take, and he means take all of you and eat all of you for their plural forms and drink all of you. Our Lord is expecting them to participate. You see, the Lord's Supper is commemoration, it's memory, it's recollection, 
but it is a communal supper. It is a fellowship. It is communion. It involves the participation of believers. The Apostle Paul underlines that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are engaged not merely in commemoration, in remembering his death, but we are engaged in communion with Christ. For that, I want to point you to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now Paul is writing these words in the context of warning believers against idolatry. He's insisting that they should not participate in pagan meals. And in that culture, you need to understand that, that much of what was done was in relationship to one God or the other. You know, people, if you were working in the trade, guilds, you were a carpenter, and you were going to have a celebration. There is a patron God for the trade guilds. And he would be featured in that celebration. The, the meal would be in honor of that God. And Paul is saying that believers cannot engage in pagan meals because if they are to do so, they are in some sense fellowshipping with demons. And he makes it clear that those who engage in the Lord's Supper are involved in fellowship, in communion. In fact, this word fellowship, koinonia, is used. It is used twice in these verses. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the koinonia, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion, the koinonia of the body of Christ? You know, this, this word koinonia means simply to share with someone in something. And when we come to the Lord's table, we affirm, first of all, our communion, our koinonia, our fellowship with Christ. It does not mean that the, the physical elements of bread and wine, that, that Jesus Christ somehow is to be seen as in these elements. But as we participate, and as we take, we are fellowshiping with Christ because we are affirming our union with him. This, this eating and this drinking is a symbol that we are in Christ, in the most profound and intimate spiritual relationship that is possible between the believer and the living Christ. It symbolizes as we eat and drink that we are appropriating by faith the benefits of Christ. That indeed we are taking to ourselves all the blessings that he won on the cross for us. It is a fellowship. It is communion. It is, it is indeed a, a rehearsing and a retelling that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. 
The Lord's table then speaks of our communion with Christ. That we, have sh we share in some sense in his death and resurrection. We have been joined to him. But as we participate, we are having an only koinonia or communion with Christ. We are engaged in koinonia or communion with one another. See, the Lord's Supper is not a personal meal. It is the Lord's Supper. It is not a private meal, but it is for the church, the body of Christ. Paul tells them that they belong to one body. They share in one bread. It means that we who are united to Christ and share in Christ are united to one another and have fellowship with one another because of Christ. It means then that our union is with Christ and with his body, the church. When we take the Lord's Supper and participate, we are affirming, first of all, that we remember Christ. We are affirming, secondly, that we are in him. It speaks of our commemoration and our communion with Christ. But the Lord's Supper, thirdly, not only does it speak of communion, it speaks of the consummation. It speaks of the consummation. Going back again to Luke 26, Jesus says this, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to remember him. We come in commemoration of his death. We come in communion and fellowship in his redemptive work. But when we come, we come in anticipation of the consummation of our hope, in the messianic banquet. Jesus says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. It is a word of farewell. He's saying, essentially, that I am going to my death. And I will never in this life share this Passover meal with you again. But for Jesus, this was not the end. That there is another celebration to come. And you note that from the text because he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is proleptic. That is, it is looking ahead. It, it is anticipatory. It is looking to a day when we will be in God's kingdom. It is, in other words, it is anticipating the great messianic banquet. He says, I will not drink it until that day that I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. There is going to be death. He will die. But it points to his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again for the church. 
It's coming, it's speaking of the wrapping up of history. The consummation and glorification of the church. It is indeed this, this messianic banquet to which it points is a celebration of the victory of God. It was customary in ancient time for kings who have won great victories to celebrate and do so with a feast. And the messianic banquet to which the Lord's Supper points is pointing to God's great victory and the celebration of that victory. It is pointing with certainty to that victory. Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He speaks with certainty because he knows himself to be victor, that he will defeat sin, he will defeat Satan, and he will defeat death. That there is this future messianic banquet when he will celebrate his victory with his people. And it's rather interesting, I think, that in Luke 22, 29 to 30, we also are going to share in that victory. Look at what the Lord tells the disciples. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The Lord's Supper points to sitting at Christ's table, sharing table fellowship with him, sitting on thrones and judging with him. It is sharing in the victory of Christ. No, it points to the messianic banquet, which is a celebration of the victory of God. It points to the messianic banquet, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That there is a great feast and a great festival and a great celebration to come when the church is finally married to Christ. Where, where Jesus Christ comes and consummates the marriage of his people with himself. And Isaiah the prophet points to this in chapter 25 verse 6. He says, and in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees, that is, aged wine. He speaks of a great feast with the best of meat and the best of wines. And then you come to the New Testament and this marvelous book of Revelation. And you hear the cry of those who are in glory singing and worshiping the Lord because of this messianic banquet. Let me read to you from Revelation 19, verse 6 and 9, or 6 to 9. John says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, 
for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true saying of God. You know, these words in Revelation 19 follow the announcement of destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. We see a section in which those who are glorified, those saints who are already in heaven, are actually praising God for his vindication. They're praising the greatness of God. But they are celebrating this banquet. And why? Why is the, why is the consummation seen as a marriage feast, as a banquet? It is because the marriage feast depicts intimacy, it depicts blessing, it depicts prosperity, and most importantly, it depicts abundant joy. You know, if, you, if you go to a wedding and people are crying, either the parents don't like the groom or the bride, or they're doing it because of joy. The marriage supper of the Lamb is joyous. And when we come to the Lord's table, to which every believer is bidden to come, when we participate in eating and drinking, we are doing so in the hope and in the certain hope that there will be a greater banquet at the end of the age, that we will be seated at table with Jesus, that he will be the host of this feast, and that we will celebrate with him. You see, every time we come, we are saying, this is but a token of what is yet to come. And I want you to know, my dear friends, that even now preparations are being made in heaven for the church of Christ. Our Lord could tell us in John 14, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and that where I am, there you may be also. We eat and we drink in commemoration of Christ's death. We eat and we drink in communion in the redemptive work of Christ. But we eat and drink in anticipation of the consummation that is the messianic banquet of Christ. It's important, you know, friends, that we remember Christ. Symbols are important. A couple summers ago, we were walking in the area of Mont Saint-Michel in France. And while we were walking, one of our family members noticed that there was, on the side of the road, a row of poppies. You know, we, 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 we use poppies on Remembrance Day because we want to remember we don't always realize that it represents a real flower. And there were rows and rows of poppies. And immediately what came to mind was men and women who lost their lives in battle and killing fields in Europe. You see, that, that, that poppy is a symbol of blood shed for our freedom. And it's important as we live our lives that we also 
embrace the Lord's table and remember that what we have in Christ, that the salvation in which we glory has been achieved at the highest cost, that the Son of God came from heaven and laid down his life for our sins, we must remember. And it is not merely that we should remember, but as one writer tells us, that memory always has an object in mind. You know, you know, our children today, they have all kinds of facts. I do not know where they get them from. And most of it, I think, is, I say respectfully, useless. They have all this knowledge. They can remember things just like that. And you don't know why they have the information. You can't really, there's no practical purpose for it. We're not just to remember the death of Christ for no reason. We are to remember that we might be thankful. We are to remember that we might give praise and glory to the Lamb. That we might honor Him. We are to remember because Christ deserves our gratitude and our praise. That He left heaven and died for me. And when you personalize it, when you remember that the cross was meant for you, it moves you to wonder, to love, and to praise. We must remember. We must appropriate. Not only does the Lord's table demand that we remember, but we must appropriate. When we come, we must again take Christ. We must eat of him, we must drink of him, we must taste him. We must take the benefits of his death, the forgiveness of sins, the justification that he gives. We must take the adoption that comes through him and the sanctification and take all of this to ourselves. We must taste, we must eat, we must drink. It calls us, thirdly, not only to remember and to appropriate. But it calls us to dedicate ourselves. It calls us to pledge ourselves to him. Many, many people refer to the Lord's table as a sacrament. And that's an interesting term, sacrament, that is used. But the word sacrament simply means pledge. It comes from Roman times in which soldiers took a military oath of allegiance. They did that when they joined the Roman army. And this oath, we are told, was administered in a dramatic way. The first person to take the oath was the tribune or the regiment's commander. He would take the oath of allegiance. And then he would assemble his regiment. And he would pick one man out of the assembled regiment. And this man would repeat the pledge in full. And swear that he would obey the commands of his general and execute them to the best of his ability. That he would never leave the standard of the Roman army on the battlefield that he would never flee under fire, 
under pressure. And then the rest of the regiment would come forward and each one would say, this also I shall never do. When we come to the Lord's table, we not only are recollecting and we are not only appropriating, we are dedicating ourselves to him. We are saying, Lord, because you have given your life, because you have died for our sins, we give you ourselves again. We devote ourselves to serving you. We will live for you. That indeed your love constrains us. That we ought to live and to die for you. You see, in the Lord's table, we are giving ourselves afresh to Christ. And because he deserves our all, he has given his all for us. He deserves our all. But my friends, may I say to you that the Lord's table is also a sign of our devotion, not only to Christ, but to one another. You know, Richard Dawkins has a controversial book called The Selfish Gene in which he essentially blames human selfishness to genetics. It doesn't have anything to do with a moral disposition but to our genes. And indeed, in the world in which we live, we are invited to be selfish. If you don't look out for number one, you're not going to go anywhere. We live in a competitive world where we are encouraged to first of all consider our own interests and ourselves. But the Lord's table reminds us that we are in Christ. And we are in Christ together. We partake of one loaf. We belong to one body. When we come to the Lord's table, we are saying that regardless of where we come from or what our experiences have been, whatever our social class in society, that we are on equal footing at the cross. That we are all debtors to mercy. That we depend only upon what Jesus Christ has done. That we are sinners saved only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saying that I am what I am by the grace of God. We are saying that we would never ever be saved if it were not for Christ. What I'm saying is, my friends, at the Lord's table we are affirming our unity. That we depend, all of us, on grace alone. On grace alone. And that means because the Lord's Supper is a supper for God's people, that there should therefore be no divisions among us. It's rather interesting how the Apostle Paul calls for unity. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing that there be no divisions among you in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. He could say, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, 
bearing from one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. These he writes to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, 1 to 6. To the Philippians, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let me say this. It is a travesty and an insult to Jesus Christ for us to come and worship and draw near and participate in drinking and eating at the Lord's table while we are living in resentment and disagreement and division with other Christians. We are denying the body of Christ. We are denying the blood of Christ. We are eating unworthily. Let us be very clear that the Lord's Supper is a call to remember Christ, remember his death and resurrection. It's a call to communion, to fellowship with him, to partake of the benefits of his, people, of his blood. But it is a call to unity, a call to live out the unity of the body of Christ. Christ has formed one body, and we are all members. May God so help us that as we celebrate this table, that it may be meaningful, that we may remember Christ and love him, that we might taste of him, eat of him, and drink of him, take what he has done, has done for us. And may we affirm our oneness with the people of God, fellow sinners, saved by grace alone, for Jesus' sake.